0: recorded live scuba obsesses weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear places a dive and scuba new news Scuba Obsessed episode 221 was recorded live November 27th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of Michigan where I am stuffed like a turkey and we are getting some nice lake effects now. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: <laughs> I am stuffed.
0: Oh. And then we also have joining us this week, Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? Burp. So, I take oh, it good. You, <clears throat> you two had some uh good Thanksgiving holiday?
2: Oh yeah, my wife stuffed two turkeys today.
0: <laughs> and, and how about you, Mac?
1: I'm over stuffed.
0: Yes, for those of you outside the US, this Thursday, which happens every year in the U.S., or we, we get it off to kick off the holiday spending season we have Thanksgiving, and uh, boy, it's a, it's, it's a good excuse just to pig out. I got to go with the family and eat a lot of turkey, watch a little football, and the Lions won this year. and yeah, them Bears suck. <laughs> I'm a lifelong Lions fan. I mean, I, not that I mean ill will to the Bears, but if there is a chance for the Lions to win, I am all for it. Cowboys did not good either. Uh, but, yeah, the Bears were uh, – the first quarter I thought they had us, and then the second and third and fourth, the Lions really took off. Lions aren't going to make the Super Bowl this year no matter what, but I think they have a shot of at least the first round of the playoffs playing the way they did today. So of, uh, so just so those outside the U.S. maybe they don't know what a Thanksgiving dinner's like. like. Uh, Mac, what was Thanksgiving food at your house?
1: Well, Hermione says we ate there. Uh, We started out with a huge turkey, and she also did a ham. You have to have the mashed potatoes and gravy with the cranberry sauce, and you have to have the turkey stuffing, which I really, really do like. Not to count, of course, the olives, the different varieties of that, cheeses and crackers and the miscellaneous snacks before you even start to eat. (laughs) Uh, I know I'm missing, you have green beans, corn, and uh, of course you have pumpkin pie if you're a purist, and you can have uh, whipped cream on top of that. And Plus, other pies and cake, so it's you're just a gluttony
0: feast. How about you, Jim? Do we lose you, Jim? Turkey coma, turkey coma. He's passed out. I'm back. I'm sorry. Okay, no problem. We were just asking, uh, what Thanksgiving's like at your house. What, what kind of food?
2: Um, the usual stuff turkey stuffing, cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie, sweet potatoes, corn, broccoli salad. Nice,
0: yeah, and at, at my place, it was, it was pretty much the same. Went over to my parents and had the turkey, the potatoes, stuffing, which is like bread and other seasonings stuffed inside the bird and cooks, which the uh, government will tell you will kill you. Uh, cranberries. I, I, I made like a, a cranberry relish. Oh, Let's see. You know, we usually have some vegetables just to pretend we're eating healthy. Uh, sweet potatoes, you have to have those. And then for the pies, I, I made a pecan and my mom made a pumpkin. Mm. And then, like Max said, there's you know there's eating before and after and during and other stuff. So, it is it is a way of requiring extra lead to sink you on your next dive. But yeah, I have to say it was worth it. <laughs> you
2: know, it's the beginning of the overindulgence season.
0: Yeah. It yeah, just well, you can see, you guys, stretch the belly a little bit so that you can survive your way through the rest of the holidays. Hmm.
1: We're just stretching out the suits, the dive suits, so in case they get put into the closet for a spell, they don't shrink as fast.
2: Yes. Well, we know better than that in both both ways with you, Mac. Yours never goes in the closet. Yours hardly
0: ever dries. Even a dry suit.
1: I hope that's going to be true this year, because we're going to have a good ice diving
0: Oh, I think so. I'm I'm ready. I, I don't have any excuse not to go. Oh, did you guys happen to – my wife uh, – I don't know. I'm, I'm sure she's not excited. I posted that photo, but you you saw the uh, the photo of the pecan pie I made.
1: Yum, yum.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she said that that the because I, I took when I make the pie it wasn't a homemade crust, but it was a you know a roll. So I rolled it out in the pan, and you have to trim some of it off. And I can remember as a kid, my mom would take and make a strip of this, and she'd sprinkle cinnamon and sugar and roll it up, and then you know when she got done cooking, the kids we could eat that little piece. And it was, it was late at night last night and I just kind of wadded it up and stuck it on the tray next to the pie. And let's say it didn't quite look like anything that's supposed to be edible. (laughs) In fact, it looked like post Thanksgiving results. So of course, you know, anything like that, you have to post on Facebook. So if you happen to follow me on Facebook, you got to see that the beautiful pie and the, uh, the not so pretty parts. So I'd like to thank everybody in the chat room. One of the things we're thankful for is that we have some great fans of the show. And so we have John and Surfer George and Coltree and Dave and a few others who have joined us in the chat room. Thank you for coming on. And uh, we, we need to do another roundtable. I think that's one of the things we're going to start scheduling in the new years. We're going to do some roundtables. I just figure out, need to figure out a time where we can do it because it might not be a Thursday night thing for a roundtable. table, it might be a special uh, maybe it's something that we do in person. We'll have to get everybody together in an event. But let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. If you have to be the chat room, you have the benefit of getting the show notes as they go. Otherwise, you got to wait for them when I get them done, which, as is evident by our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, that those show notes can be a little delayed. This is an open letter from Brian. Brian is with uh, TDI, SDI. It's, what does he call himself? Brian Carney, president of SDITDIERDI, TDI, ERDI. And he, uh, the letter kind of in response. If you remember, we covered an article in the previous weeks about the Utah dive shop owner who was uh, in the middle of a lawsuit. And Patty had secretly settled. And there was all sorts of issues with the case uh, with Patty's wanting to be named, as still wanting to be involved but not involved. And we're not going to read the whole letter. If you want to read the letter, you can go to the uh, TDI SDI website, which is www.tdisdi.com. And the letter is uh, 2014 letter by Brian, open letter to personal protection, protective perspective, excuse me, the open letter of personal perspective to the diving industry. And he goes on and he explains a little bit about the case, which we talked about a uh, lawsuit underway in federal court in Utah, which is the Turville versus Boy Scouts of America. Uh, where a boy lost his life in a paddy discover scuba diving program. Normally, paddy supports its members and vigorously defends litigations, but not this time. And he goes into detail and he even offers a hypothesis of why he thought that happened. He says, you're most likely asking yourself why... Why am I drafting this notice defending a Patty instructor's uh, fatality during one of his courses is because I believe that one of the biggest dive training agencies in the world has an obligation to lead in a positive way. The whole industry can benefit. In years past, this type of behavior, lying in a court and collecting with the plaintiffs, was frowned upon by everyone. And this is his words, not ours, not to mention being illegal. As a matter of fact, Patty has famously chastised and ridiculed attorneys and witnesses who used to work on their own behalf for defense litigation, but now the work of the plaintiff as well. And what his point is, he says, he says, by writing this letter, I'm recommending and urging that every dive professional in the industry to ask the organizations they're working with to put in writing that if you follow their standards, you'll be supported by the organization you teach with. And then he says his organization, SDI, TDI, ERDI, will be happy to do this regardless of the insurance care you use, and I challenge all training agencies to do the same. We can work with the instructors of this industry for organizations. If we can't trust them to provide vigorous defense when accidents happen and standards are followed, are the standards only there to protect and enable the agency and blaming the instructor no matter what happens? Then he says, you know, later on, he says, I regret having the right to slater. Deeply so. I know some of you will chastise and ridicule me. For bringing this to light, but it would be irresponsible for me not to make the distinctions we have. He says, how long will it be before we destroy this industry from within? So what do you think, Mac?
1: Well, on the face of it, it sounds interesting, meaning it sounds like there's a conflict of interest by Patty. Uh, so I really don't know. I tried to like say, get the papers. I could look at the case. What little I could find, what he said appeared to be correct. What I really don't know is all the issues or how the lawsuit was worded from the aspect of the death and what did he do that was incorrect. Uh, I did look through all the comments at the end of that this particular item we're looking at, and one part sounded interesting from a guy, a gentleman named Summers. Uh, he said, reading this letter, it does sound very one-sided, which I guess it should be, as it is a personal perspective. But I don't think the full picture is represented here. I won't speculate as I don't know all the facts. However, it's important to remember that someone can still be negligent, even reckless while still following standards. So I don't see the point of Brian's recommendation. Um, I'd be curious how you can be really negligent and reckless if you're following the standards.
0: You know, I agree with you. I, but are the standards meant to cover everything? Is it ever if you follow the standards completely that you would never have a fatality?
1: It's reckless is my keyword. Negligent, I, again, you know, there's intentional and unintentional, but recklessness, to me, that appears to be, that would appear to me to be, you know, you did that knowingly. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not curious. I am i don't know about that the statement, the way you wrote it here.
0: Well, I would but, definitely be, if I was a PADI instructor, which I'm not, you know, I, I've taken classes as patty, I've taken classes with SSI, I haven't done any with this organization that I'm aware of. Uh, but if I was an instructor... I think that would be something from now on I'm going to make sure and have them clarify. And you you know right now if you're an instructor and you ask Patty, there's going to be no comment. You know, it's in your agreement, we follow our agreements. We can't talk on pending litigation, which is a, which is a is going to be a week out, but that's what I would firmly expect. Uh, I think their attorneys would recommend that. Uh, but you know, in, and I think he, he indicated in the article a little bit why Patty would be motivated is, is it would be the limitation of liability on their part. So if they had the opportunity to settle and they're looking at it purely from an economic case, they can settle with a plaintiff, which the plaintiff can then no longer sue them because they've they've settled and they've just reduced their liability. So no matter what the situation is, they, they got out pretty good. Uh, and then if they've settled, they really don't have a position where they can help Could they even help protect that dive owner?
1: Well, it sounded like the other issue was that they then helped the opposing counsel, and it's unclear why they would have done that, to me anyway. And one, my understanding, that's not legal.
0: To settle on one side and then provide... Well, yeah, yeah.
1: you're you're represented by them. They settle out. Now they're going to provide the opposing counsel information that was privileged with you to them to the other people. I don't know the the legalities of that aspect.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. Something about it just does not feel right, though, to me.
2: Uh, if you look closely, I'll bet you'll find something to do with the insurance carriers and who was underwriting the insurance and maybe some attempt to cause other insurance carriers uh, to have to pay
0: out. Well, there's also, when you get insurance, uh, the, if the attorneys or that insurance agency is paying for your legal costs, You have to work with them and follow their lead, and if you choose not to follow their advice, you can be personally liable. When I say personally, I mean that the organization assumes the liability that the insurance carrier was going to pick up. Mm -hmm. So that can also play a factor in it, where you could be operating completely in the clear, and then you are kind of forced by other situations to have to, to do maybe what they did, which was settle and do these other things. Uh, I'm sure they did not intend anticipate it to become this much of a PR nightmare that it has been.
1: Some of the other comments seem to indicate that the dive industry instructors are finding it harder to get coverage. Uh, another one over here was, and this is dated just a couple of days ago. As a PADI instructor, I've been using Willis Insurance for many years. Just received a notice they are getting out of the business after my coverage ends this summer. There are now fewer insurance carriers for all of us, less competition, using higher prices, but probably more business for Venencia and Buckley. And I'm not sure who they are. Unless it's a larger insurance agency that does a, a lot of work with divers or dive companies,
0: yeah, I'm I'm that's certainly going to be supply and demand. If you've only got a few people supplying the insurance, it's going to increase in cost. And and it seems like many industries will go through this cycle. Well, you have some litigation, you have some injury, because uh, you know, they, they you know the, what you're doing with insurance is you're spreading the risk of a single event across a larger pool of people. And as the less people get insurance, it means the, each event is a significant portion to the remainders?
1: It'll be interesting to follow it uh, you know, a couple of months down the line when the smoke is cleared and then get a, a secondary overview, especially if the basis is that it was illegal for them to reveal part of his information. Um, that's got to be picked up by somebody. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what this sounds like about two months from now.
0: Yes. Okay. So the next one, next article we have is if you remember last week we had that vessel that was discovered the ss ventnor it sank 112 years ago off the northern new zealand coast uh, 499 chinese miners bodies were being transported on the on the vessel some in wooden coffins other in sealed zinc caskets they had tried their luck in new zealand gold rush and had paid in advance to ensure their bodies would go back to china no matter what and then the uh, The wreck on its way back uh, disappeared. It was discovered in 2012, raising the possibility that someday the the remains may go home. Now the question is, should they? I went to the media conference and had no idea what was going on. I was shocked and disappointed that we hadn't been consulted and hadn't been informed beforehand, said Virginia Chong, the previous president of New Zealand Chinese Association. The bodies and bones on that ship are our ancestors, our people. And this is in response to the... What's that? Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I said this is a response to new, uh, new Chinese communities who, who say that he removed artifacts from the wreck without consulting them and against their wishes.
2: It sounds like how come he didn't ask us?
0: Well, did they know at the time? I mean, that's that's just kind of a. No,
2: well, I think after they discovered the wreck, they researched it and determined what it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now they're doing this news conference and announce it. And this one Chinese organization in New Zealand is got their nose out of joint because they weren't consulted about it. Well, they—you know—reading the article, it doesn't sound like they technically have any standing.
0: Well, they—it doesn't. It's like they're—they're. I mean, this is just a a group, an organization. I mean, uh, assuming the name means anything. Uh, let's see what they, what they call it again, uh, the New, Z- New Zealand Chinese Association. So that just, might just be an advocacy group for the Chinese in New Zealand. Uh, I mean, it may have been a courtesy, but how many groups are there that you could have consulted? Yeah. Is this the only one? Is this an a, an NGO, an non-government agency, or something else? So why would they specifically need to be consulted? And they say these are their families. Well, are we sure? I mean, you, know, you could pick one of my ethnic backgrounds and have a ship with it. Uh, you know, there's no way I can say it's my family. I mean, it could be people of my ethnic background. But does that necessarily give me authority or rights over it?
1: Well, at 500 feet, I don't know how he's going to make any money out of artifacts if all it is is bodies. And he's already spent a quarter of a million dollars on it. So if somebody else wants to take, uh, you know, if they're that concerned about it, they should take possession, give them this. Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars back for finder's fee and then proceed to do whatever they feel
0: is best. Okay. So so he said he said the search cost him three hundred thousand New Zealand dollars, which is two hundred and thirty six thousand US. So far he said that while it will be up to officials, to decide to pay the, the, of the remains, he thinks the body should go to China because that's what the miners had wanted. Now, that amount there, is he just talking in general? I mean if I if I go out and let's let's say this is Lake Michigan. And I spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars searching for shipwrecks, and the first one I find, does that? Do we say that that shipwreck? I spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars to find it, or is that something I found while spending my two hundred fifty thousand dollars? You because know, wow. did he think he was going to? I mean, if if you spent, let let let's say you go and you double the time, and it's a half million dollars, but you find three shipwrecks. I mean, it, it's all about how you do the accounting. You know, these these. People aren't responsible for his choice of endeavor, are they?
1: Well, it's 2012 when he found it. It took how long to determine it was of interest to other people? And again, at 500 feet, I'm quite sure you can burn a quarter million dollars in gas and other items. Now, what kind of boat have you got if you're going to be anchoring in that depth? I'm sure he has some interesting expenses. It's just, again, how was he going to recover his money to begin
0: with? Well, well, right. What was he hoping? I mean, is is there three other ships he's looking for? See, to my point is that if this is not what he was – if he's searching for a wreck that's a profile and this is not that profile that he was really searching for, do you sign the whole value of that search to this wreck? And then what's the point of throwing the money out there? Does that – because he spent money, does that make him more entitled to decide – what happens to the wreck to somebody else? Uh, yeah. yeah. So he so find, he's, does he have he salvage find, on it?
1: Uh, d- right. I mean, the, the old days, it's salvage rights.
0: Yeah. So that's what I'm I asking is, does he have salvage rights?
1: Yeah. Again, at 500 feet, and I saw the pictures of the boat before it sank, I can't find out to figure out where he's going to get his money back. Yeah. There ain't that many portholes.
0: Yeah. Well, and that that would be the, the other thing is, if he's got rights to it, just because somebody dies in a ship doesn't make it a the secret gravesite. So there should be a discussion that happens and he can make a recommendation i mean these these people were in one way i agree with them they were intended to be going back to china if he picks up the vessel and he and, and that's where they were supposed to be going does that any less likely now obviously being a few hundred years later you have to figure out is there a i mean you just can't pick up the bodies take them over there and expect them to go do they need to be preserved somehow uh you know and then just some general pr you gotta be nice about it ask ask a few people i don't know you know, is this New Zealand's version of the Rainbow Coalition going on here? Yeah, you know, will they, will they the be happy if he if he gives them you know some money?
1: Would you want the State of Michigan to pay money for recovery of remains of a hundred and something years old?
0: Not me. No. no, I don't. That's that's not my my belief system. It's like at this point, you know, accidents happen. But I don't know. Would I be it, like say he does get salvage a ship? Do I want him just to kind of cut the ship open, shake the bodies out, and then pull the ship up? I mean, is that the other option?
1: Slippery slope. <laughs> Does that I mean any ship out there that might have had a body on it is protected as a, I don't a cemetery it's... or, you
2: know, what I'm saying, burial yeah. site?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Jim's awful quiet in this. I think he didn't want to touch it.
2: Oh, you guys are, are covering the subject well. It's, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a, well, first off, let's look at it. The bodies on there were cargo. It's not like this is the Titanic where people died on the vessel or in the vessel you know these oh, were good point these bodies were were dug up and being shipped back as cargo
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know the uh yeah. the boxes contain nothing but the bones of the indiv- some individuals and then the the full bodies were in the zinc caskets zinc faults so we yeah. know what happens to zinc in salt water
0: yeah probably uh, <laughs> What do they call that? Uh, sacrificial anode? Is that what a zinc is? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, I'm actually going through my mind now thinking, gee, what does the ship look like next to these uh, zinc coffins? Did it help uh, keep a, keep some of the structure a little bit more intact? Of course, this is probably wood. Uh, I remember we, looked,
1: we saw the pictures of the ship fort tank, and it wasn't in really good shape.
0: Yeah, but it's cargo. Gosh, it's, oh, goodness. the? Would the uh, I mean, you don't know how, how it was insured, but if— Oh, gosh, this is like, like you said, Mac, a slippery slope. It so, yeah, sure is a slippery slope. So say the insurance company paid off on this. So say there was, if this vessel was somehow insured, uh, it would say, oh, so sorry, the cargo didn't make it. We'll reimburse you a certain amount, not knowing what that would be. Now he's got salvage right. Does he own those bodies? Not now, getting into the,
2: you know, there was an insurance policy that paid for the bodies to be delivered back to China. This is one the lawyers can sort out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, well, we we get the same ones who worked on that, that Utah case.
1: Well I'm I'm just looking a hundred year olds at least. How are you gonna find out whose the bodies belong to? And then if they did have any kin,
0: are they gonna to pay to get the bodies back?
2: Yeah, and if they were in wooden box and the woods gone, you now have piles of bones.
0: Well imagine you're it's in chi- you're you're in China. Uh I'm not knowing enough about Chinese culture, but I imagine there's some cost involved with Putting somebody in the ground, you Now, Do you want to? If you're the relative in China, do you want to get a a bill saying, "Hey, here's uh, three hundred dollars to bury somebody from a couple hundred years ago or a hundred years ago?"
1: Not so much to bury all. I want to see how much it costs you to get them up.
0: Oh. Well,
2: let's watch and see. We'll yeah, we'll keep an eye on the this story one and see what happens.
0: So the next one we have is cleaning up three hundred million tons of ocean
1: plastic. Did we skip one? By the way, did I skip one? shipwreck relics? Yeah, it's the same story.
0: Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's yep. the, it's the just another version of the article. I, I put both of them in as a, as a reference. A lot
1: of nets on that boat at 500 feet.
0: I couldn't get that 300 tons of plastic to open. Here, let me send you the the link in uh, Skype for you. Okay. That's the same link. Ah, huh. came up this time. Okay, thank you. Yep. So uh, what's, what this is in response to is Boyan Slat, He's uh, cleaning up 300 million tons of ocean plastic. So once there was the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, we are now in the middle of the Plastic Age, says teenager boy and slat. Every year we produce 300 million tons of plastic. Much of it reaches our oceans at 16 years of age. uh, He's dived off Greece and Mediterranean Sea to see more debris floating on the surface. He said, at first I thought it was swimming through strange jellyfish. Instead, I swam through more plastic bags and fish, seeing all the ocean trash. He says, why not clean it up? He quit his aerospace engineering studies to create uh, theoceancleanup.com. In order to fund his research on how to pick up all the plastic float in the oceans, researchers discovered that 46,000 pieces of plastic float on every square mile of Earth's ocean. The plastic debris stems from billions of humans around the planet tossing their plastic in rivers, streams, and directly into the oceans. Thousands of ship, boats, luxury cruisers toss millions of pieces of plastic every day in around the globe plastic does not break down. It oxidizes into smaller pieces but never degrades. I only have one
1: issue. What's how up? the hell did they determine you had 46,000 pieces per <laughs> for square mile in every ocean? Eh,
0: they You, you know? know how they do that. They just kind of uh, say, oh, I saw this here in the sampling and then we go here. And Okay. Well, what I, what I like to dispute, is that true that I mean, they're making plastic sound like asbestos, because isn't that how you would describe asbestos? It never really breaks down. It just breaks into smaller and smaller pieces.
1: Well, the only difference, I suppose, there is asbestos only does damage to humans when in the friable condition, and they're going to breathe it in and have issues with the lungs.
0: Right. And and the reason why it does that is because it's a mineral in which the mineral that's the shape— structure of it that as it breaks down it keeps forming into i'm trying to remember what the exact ratio was but it was something like a third a third width times length or something which made it embed itself into the lining of the lungs in the case of plastic it's a polymer it's a strain of chemicals or uh you know a a polymer chain from uh you know uh, petrochemicals and it can it can be reacted with so i would dispute that plastic never really breaks down. Now, I don't know at what level it breaks down, when it breaks down. So, you know, we may be just splitting hairs, but I, you know, when I see always and never, that's a first concern of mine, uh, that something might not be exactly as it's being portrayed. Now, with that said, I'm, I'm not a big fan of plastics floating around in our oceans, and I think maybe we need to be developing some plastics that don't, you know, do we need a plastic bag to last forever? Or... For thousands of years. Now, we may want a plastic container, which is to hold a document, to last for hundreds of years. So there, is, there could be a case where some plastics need to last longer than others. And then they go in the article and they talk about the Great Garbage Patch, which is kind of one of those things as well. Uh, and he goes on and on. He did a TED Talk. Let's see. I thought there was another point to this. and Maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought there was more to it. That's That's about it.
1: We read about him a year or so ago when we were talking about the machines for harvesting plastic. Well, that's what I
0: thought that they would be getting into. But this article just kind of, uh, they they talk about the beginning pitch, but they don't show the rest of it. So I was hoping that they would have a little bit more answers about, you know, here he's just saying why it's bad.
1: Right. You have to look at that 11-minute video he had on there.
0: Oh, maybe that's it. I'll have to look at that video and see what he's got. Okay.
1: I see. We're continuing the theme, though.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Local S- beaches of toxic creosote pilings.
0: Well, I saw this, and I didn't realize that creosote was considered to be toxic. I mean, I mean, and it's kind of like if if you look at what the fed the and I'm not picking the federal government here for once, but if you look at the federal government, they did their study on cedar, and the presumption was that if bugs don't eat it and it doesn't decay, it must be bad. So here's something that grew naturally. And they were looking at it and th- saying, do we need to treat this as a bad item? And that's kind of the same thing with, that we're saying with creosote is that the assumption is that it's bad.
1: Well, they're saying it breaks down over time and gives up, uh, what did they say, 300 chemicals?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's I,
1: what's toxic to marine species?
0: Well, I know that you can't get creosote anymore. And I, I actually, because it, it used to be. Yeah, you know, I had family members who would do projects, and that was one of the, the staples. In fact, my grandfather for uh, seawalls and stuff. You'd get creosote, you'd get logs, and you would do your own pressure treating.
1: They used to do that to telephone poles. Yeah,
0: you know, throw them in a bucket and let it leach into the wood. And yeah. so,
2: Think of all the telephone poles that are out there now, and you you, you walk by them in the summertime just... and see the pile of uh, black creosote laying on the ground around so, them.
0: I, I like to take a big sniff and breathe that in all that nice <laughs> creosote smell this mm. <laughs> probably probably Tar and cyanide
2: bit. and yeah, yeah, all kinds of good chemicals. Yeah.
1: Well, the issue there is, and I know from firsthand, my cousin lived across the railroad track from a factory that did that in Georgia. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And back the time, you know, you get used to the smell; smells pretty good. Mm-hmm. and You'd find big square cubes of it. You know, like two or three meters were solidified. Yeah. We learned real quick that you don't shoot a twenty two rifle at them because they bounce.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: The long-term effects from that is it poisoned the freaking area and all the wells that people didn't know. Mm-hmm. And even my, my uncle basically died from the results of drinking the water that was polluted by the creosol.
0: Ah, so not a good cocktail then.
1: I wouldn't want to drink the water from it. And
0: in fact, that's what they call it in the article. They call releasing what she calls a cocktail of 300 chemicals. <laughs> the chemicals of most concern are called uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, pah And that's probably that smell, that creosote smell right there, aromatic. And they said it's toxic for certain marine species, including many forage fish, which are considered vital to the food chain. For instance, herrings exposed to creosote have a 95% mortality rate. And with well, English sole, that must be a fish. So it gets into the food chain. Creosote also contains carcinogens. Creosote-treated woods that washes ashore is considered to be a risk to humans. They'll eventually break apart end up on the beaches. Kids build forts with them, and people make bonfires. Yes, that is never a good idea to burn any treated woods.
1: Not if you're going to smell the vapor or the smoke.
0: Yeah, uh, the same thing can happen with modern versions. Uh, that is not a good thing to be breathing in. Especially if you're going to cook that's on the actually, fire. That's like a double whammy. That's actually against the law in Michigan. What, burning pressure-treated?
2: Burning pressure-treated wood.
0: Yeah. Well, see, and there's different types of pressure-treated as well. Uh, there's, I, I think, well, it, we could go into all that, but the DNR began removing abandoned and unused creosote pilings and other debris from beaches in 2003 and 2000 the effort got a boost when the governor, uh, Chris, uh, Grigori launched a campaign to clean up the Puget Sound in 20 by 2020 new legislation funneled millions in restoration work with creosote removal a high priority. Since then, DNR has removed nearly 13,000 pilings in the sound along with 2,800 tons of creosote debris from the beaches. Current funding program comes from a one million dollar allocation of the state for two years piling removal project money that DNR generates by leasing state owned land. What do
1: they do with the pilings they drag up, and where do they dispose of them?
0: Says the uh, the project cost is 162 thousand, including the cost of hiling the po- the pilings to a landfill. So they're taking so it to So we just a put landfill. them
1: in the ground and leach it through there.
2: Maybe
0: they wrap them in plastic bags. Yeah, plastic bags. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's just do that. Uh, they said, well, creosote removal is generally considered a good thing to state. Hired barges are not a welcome site for everyone. Some feel the pilings have historic significance, like they like to see them in the water. Others regret the habitat loss for sea animals and birds. Some pilings are popular destination for scuba diving. Uh, on uh, Vashon, a Gold Beach resident objected to removal of pilings outside his home. Hoping they could be used in a future dock, but a family in the Shiawassee area called to ask the state to remove some pilings that were p- falling apart in place they like to swim. They're just going to fall over. We've seen them everywhere. He said that the state only removes pilings that are abandoned and unmaintained. All pilings taken out are either on state-owned land or state permission from a landowner. So they're saying if you don't, if they don't have your permission, they can't take them? No, they're going to make you take it out then. <laughs> Yeah,
2: it's another riparian land rights issue. Yeah.
0: Now, what did they do
1: with the old boats in the old days? Didn't they put a um, caulking material similar to
0: creosote on the old ship hull? I mean, Jim, that would be your area of expertise.
2: Um, well, they used tarred line or tarred cotton.
0: And isn't tar part of the well, issue that there is in creosote?
2: Yeah, I think creosote has more chemicals in it than tar, straight
0: tar. So creosote, by the name, sounds almost like a brand, doesn't it? Or maybe it was a specific mixture. Because, I mean, tar has been around for a long time. I mean, you can still get it.
1: Well, I just remember that I know epoxy is also leachable and breaks down over the period of time, and every fiberglass boat you have out there could be considered toxic from that aspect down the road. So is paint. So is lead paint. So it's pretty much anything we have over time appears to break down and leach out air, soil, or water. Doesn't it?
0: So your only only your old wooden crisscraft boats are which should be should be running now.
1: Well, you have shellac on those, and uh, <laughs> shellac, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, I used to love going
0: to my grandfather's basement and get all that spar varnish all going. Ah,
1: it, it almost sounds like no matter what you find or do down the road, it's going to be poisonous to something somehow
0: somewhere. Yeah, probably. Well, I don't think we're going to solve that tonight. Oh, no, but it's
1: interesting. They're trying to spend money on it.
0: Well, yeah. Well, the, and the question comes is, is it worse to leave it there or to clean it up? And ask that question both ways. If it was free to do or if it pays money to do, you know, you answer it both ways. Because if it's, if everything's, if you can't say it's better to clean it up and it would be, if it was free, then it makes no sense to spend money on it. Because you can't, I think many times we justify it because somebody's going to make money on removing it. Yeah. You know, we're, we're looking at it as doing jobs, which I look at it as me paying money to have something done that may not have needed to be done. Plus, you know, scuba divers, we like to dive on those things, <laughs> at least according to the article. Here we go, and we have the hyperbaric chamber, and a study has said that the chambers may not help concussions. Despite anecdotal reports that hyperbaric chambers using oxygen to treat concussions, strong evidence is is mounting that they don't. Latest strike against increasingly popular therapy is a study of U.S. service members with persistent concussion symptoms, including headaches, balance problems, fatigue, forgetfulness, forgetfulness, irritability, and anxiety. Those who spent 40 sessions in a pressurized chamber breathing pure oxygen saw no more improvement than a control group that, completed the same number of sessions at lower pressure chamber breathing normal air. However, both groups fared significantly better than the third group that received only one standard care. So doesn't this article right off the beginning disprove itself or they're making the wrong assumptions?
2: Well, were they in pressurized yeah, I mean, if they were in the chamber, and well, you've got pressurization. That's a factor right there.
0: Right. So it's, it's and almost then you like got they
2: pressurization with higher oxygen levels is a second factor. And if you got two groups that benefited just from pressurization,
0: yeah, To me, it's almost like they proved to what it. the
2: article saying. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they almost proved it. So I think they need to do another study and study does people who don't get the treatment do better than those who who do. And then, because they're they're saying that the oxygen does better or not. Well, we we know that when you are in a chamber and you are compressing, you are changing the density of oxygen. So even air is going to have a higher density of oxygen than regular. So they they're just they're the what they're they're doing is they're saying what extent of to the air.
2: How much it, oxygen do they need to make it beneficial?
0: And is that maybe the assumption with the hyperbaric chamber? Why they're saying is that the oxygen, you know, is are they assuming that, that the benefit of the pressurization is increased oxygen getting to the brain? But is that really what, in a concussion, what has happened is your body was moving, you stopped the skull, but the brain then decided to, or decided, it didn't really decide, it ended up crashing into the skull. Uh, which can tear some of the linings and cause damage and other things. So you have more going on there than oxygen. That it seems like pressure could help with.
1: Well, we don't know the difference in the pressures for a pressurized chamber and a lower pressure. What's the difference in that? You do. Know, you know that either way, you're going to have more uh, oxygen saturation in the tissue, and it looks like some oxygen saturation of the tissue, either lower or pure oxygen, is better than when you don't.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So when they say may not help concussions, that that appears to be incorrect.
0: Yeah, well that would be my point. But the scary thing about it is you got to study now. So does an insurance company use this as a reason to deny you the treatment? Is that each, of course. It's each session costs between two hundred and four hundred dollars. So forty sessions is that one hundred sixty thousand dollars? Is that really that much money? Did I just do sixteen thousand dollars? Yeah. So sixteen thousand dollars could be the high end of that. And then this next one, I haven't really gone into this one. This one was a another article talking about the Google Street View underwater. This is from. What's a, is,
1: what's a big advantage for the majority of people being able to see under the water in 3D or 360 degree?
0: Well, to me, it's just a way of getting other people to be down there and see what it's like. It's it's believe me, it's better Mark. to go scuba diving than watching watch on a screen, but I actually want to do some of this. I'd love to set up a camera or an ROV and do this 360 view. Armchair scuba diving. Well, armchair scuba diving. It's also documentation. If you go and, you know, say, let's just take Max Rec, for example. You know, if, ever, if once a year or twice a year you went and did a fly down through the middle of it, you could sit there and, uh, you know, in your chair when you're not diving, look around and if you want to take a measurement, in fact, I was just talking to somebody last week, and we'll, we'll cover this later in the show, uh, is that some of these camera systems are so accurate, they can actually use them to determine and take measurements of objects. So in the case of a shipwreck, you could actually use it to, to help you evaluate the object. Was it photo, I'm trying to remember the, the technical term, phototelemetry or we 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 at work we print a magazine that talks about all this stuff
1: uh, it still comes down to a return on investment are you going to spend that much time energy and money unless you get something back for your
0: venture oh well, for google it's it's its data i mean the fact that you viewed the video for google already gives them a data point on you it's about them figuring out who you are what you like to market to and google's whole point is google wants the internet to be crack so that you can't get away from it and that you're on it. Because every minute you're on it is the more money they make. Where your ISP is the opposite. Your ISP is they want you to pay for it and then not use it. Kind of like that gym membership. You know, you, you spend the $30 a month and not go in. That's when the gym's the happiest. They don't want you to use it. They want you to pay the money. And that's what your ISP is. That's why Google and the ISPs are not the same.
1: Yeah, they got a lot more return on the investment.
0: Yeah. So Google, for them... They're probably making more money on just the good PR because people have somehow interpret this as being a, a healthy, good thing. And uh, Google really wants to digitize the whole planet. That's uh, one of their goals: is to any bit of data, everything, everywhere. They they want to have that information. But I kind of like it. I kind of like the idea myself. But I never, you know, I say that I've never gone on and other than do a quick link on it, I I tend not to do it. I don't. I don't. I haven't really gotten into it. And so if you want to see it, you can go to maps.google.com forward slash oceans. And then there's other other groups, uh, Catalina Sea View Survey and the Catlin Global Reef Record. Also, we are getting into the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. And for us in the U.S., that's the beginning of our Christmas season. That's where you can actually pl- start to play Christmas carols. And people uh, should not be getting mad at you, I guess, is the is the, is the proper term. So, what happens in Chicago is November 25th, starting at 4:30 p.m. The city will have the official Christmas tree lighting ceremony in Daly Plaza, and that the original history of this goes back to uh, the Chicago Christmas tree. It was a, which started as a tragic sinking of uh, what was called the Christmas tree ship, Ralph Simmons, and it took place in uh, November 23rd, 1912. The Ralph Simmons was a three-masted schooner that was built by Alan Mc, uh, McSellen and Co. out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The boat was named after a Kenosha businessman whose brother, Zalman Simmons, was has started his popular mattress company. Ship Captain Herman, uh, guys, what is that? Shul- Shuliman? had purchased a one-six percent of the Rouse Simmons was nicknamed Captain Santa because he would bring freshly Christmas cut Christmas trees from northern Michigan to the docks in Chicago on Clark Street where he would sell the trees from 50 cents to a dollar and even give away free trees to Chicago's less fortunate families. It left Chicago for its final trip on November 22nd. They say 2012. I think that might be the wrong date. That's 1912. Mm-hmm. Sailors would try to never start a trip on a Friday because it was loaded as it was because it was looked at as very bad luck, the ship was loaded to its capacity with trees in upper Michigan, left Thompson, Michigan for its trip back to Chicago against the advice of residents due to the reports of a very dangerous weather. The vessel's last sighted by the U.S. Life Saving Service, now the U.S. Coast Guard off Kiwani, Ke- uh, Wisconsin, with its flag at half-mast, assigned a of distress close to 3 p.m. on Saturday, November 23, 1912, the loss uh, lost sight of the ship and notified the next station south, being Two Rivers. Two Rivers launched a powerboat to try and intercept the ship, but there's no signs of it. Ralph Simmons had vanished. What exactly became the ship remained a mystery uh, until uh, Gordon Kent Bell Richard, while serving for the wreck, searching for the wreck of the steamer Vernon, came upon the Christmas tree ship in 172 feet of water off the coast of Two Rivers, Wisconsin. When the site was excavated, the ship was found without its steering wheel and the lucky horseshoe hanging. By only one nail. The horseshoe would have been nailed so it was in the shape of a U so that it would hold the luck in it. If it came loose and hung with a U pointing downwards, it meant the luck had run out, so it seems that the same had happened for the ship.
1: Always an interesting story,
0: isn't it? It is. I, I, I love reading it. Mm-hmm. You can read more of it, too. It's on uh, chicagonow.com, and they go into some additional details, which for brevity we'll, we'll go through. But it's a, it's an interesting story. And I've heard uh, rumors that they, they've pulled up some of the, the trees and, and used them since then.
1: Well, you know, the key people forget is it's not just that boat. There was multiple schooners that used to transport Christmas trees across
0: the lake. Yeah, it was, it was a crop like anything else. It could have been peaches. It could be wheat, lumber, Christmas trees.
1: Right, and they basically did that until the 1920s, early 1920s, and they stopped it only because you could send them by rail, right. highways and railways. It's cheaper to send them that way than it was by the boats anymore. But there's multiple boats out there that if you found them with trees on it, could be a Christmas tree boat.
0: Now the thing with the Christmas tree boat here. Well, also you wouldn't have to have the best boat be a Christmas tree boat. Uh, but on the on the Christmas tree boat, when they pulled in the dock, you know I, I like to romantically believe that the boat pulled in the dock. You'd had all these trees stood up on the deck, and people would come and buy them right there. But what did they do with these? Did they have you know say trailers? Sold, uh, take sold them, to-
2: them off the. They sold them off the ship and on the. The wharf there, from what I'm told. Okay. And I'm sure they also sold some wholesale that would be hauled off and sold in other parts of the city.
1: Yeah, they said the Chicago residents used to buy them at dockside at the Clark Street Bridge. Cutting out the middle end, people could be, you know, buy them more cheap than if they bought them from some other group.
0: Right. So this isn't the only place you could get them, too. You had people trucking them into town you had people who you probably had some farms i mean we got them down here in michigan that have been going on for quite a while maybe not the 20s but uh you know you could go and get them uh, but i'm also wondering what happens so if if i've got that tree and i don't sell them all i mean they they, they make it sound like they were giving away the less fortunate but it could be you know the, you get two days before christmas and any you got left what do you do with them
1: yeah they said the tree sold between uh for 50 cents to a dollar and he it says he loaded his schooner with 5,500 trees in Thompson Harbor near Menace, Green, Michigan, and made the long, the week-long trip to Chicago. Five thousand five hundred trees—that's quite a few.
0: That's quite a few, but mm-hmm. considering the population of Chicago, I mean, that's not—that was—that's hardly even breaks a dent, does it?
1: Well, in 1920, well, yeah, Chicago—it's quite heavy by
0: 1920s. Yeah. Yeah, so like you said, this probably wasn't the only vessel doing it and it wasn't the only way to to get trees. But it an interesting story nonetheless. Yeah. And uh you can it's another shipwreck, even though it's a little deep for recreational diving at uh, 172 feet, you can get people who will take you out there.
1: And we're talking about when the Simmons went down, it was not the only one, the South Shore went down, the three sisters and the two brothers also went time down.
0: And you say three sisters, two brothers, is that the name of the boats? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, when, when Lake Michigan got a little angry, it was uh, there more than one might be in the way. Yeah. And then here's another follow-up. I think we're still classified. These as all follow-up stories. The Finnish brewer recreates the 170-year-old shipwreck beer. We had talked about this a few weeks ago as well. Uh, what they had done is there's a beer that they had pulled up from the bottom. Uh, let's see, how many years was it? 170 years old. The, the Finnish brewery has recreated a 170 Belgian beer, which was found on a shipwreck in the Baltic Sea, giving the taste of one of the oldest recipes ever released. The wreck was discovered off Finland's Åland uh, Islands in 2010, 40 feet below the sea level. The divers uncovered the bottles of beer, along with 145-bottle champagne, which has since been confirmed as the world's oldest drinkable champagne. The research center in ESPO investigated the bottles and included... That they originated in Belgium, given that the bottle was bottled rather than transported in barrels. The researchers also concluded to be higher quality beer than the standard drink available at the time. So 120,000 bottles have been produced and labeled. Appropriately enough, the uh, Stahlhagen 1843, a smaller run of 1,000 bottles, was sold in September, with the first bottles going at auction for 850 euros. Neither are currently available outside Finland, but there are plans to release both products on global scale in the future. So that, 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 they keep talking about that price, and that's what I was kind of hoping we'd get some more information on. 850 euros. But that, So that's at auction. So they had a 1,000 run, specialty run. You know, some crazy guy bought one for 850. Sometimes it's, a, it's one of the distributors just to make the press.
1: Well, we do know that Bailey's and a glass bottle... With the cork in it, does not set very well for more than a year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I I understand. I think you uh, that's a good research study you did there. Uh, one thing they did know is that the final product is said to be significantly sweeter than more modern beers and came with a 4.7 percent alcohol content. Which what's what's beer at now?
1: I thought it was less
0: than five. That's what I thought. It sounded like the same because you can uh, in some of these new brews are coming up with you can get some five and seven percent but I, I was thinking it was a little bit less than that so it seemed to be in the ballpark it i i marked this up as one of those things where uh if you have something that's unique that you can get everybody to try once that's a heck of a lot of people <laughs> which uh, you, all your restaurants tend to try and do that's why they come up with those those crazy foods and meals need to find a way to get you back in and then a report could put door county shipwreck on the national list the Wisconsin Historical Society presented a report from fieldwork completed last year. They said that it was uh, there was intriguing curiosity surrounding the sinking of a steamship Lakeland just east of Surge Sturgeon Bay, Ship Canal, and Lake Michigan, the event that took place 90 years ago next week on what was December 3rd, 1924. They said it's safe to say the record should be quite a tourist attraction if not for the location at more than 200 feet deep, a challenging depth even for the most experienced diver. The vessel was rich with historical significance being built in 1886 through 87 by the Globe Ironworks of Cleveland, originally Christian to Cambria, merely uh, Gardner to place in history books not only being the second vessel at Globe to be built with steel hull plates, but also the first in the Great Lakes equipped with a triple expansion steam engine. For a short time at 297 feet, it was also the longest bulk freighter on, on the lakes. Now that is a very early triple expansion steam engine, but you cannot say a triple expansion was rare. So the cargo was included, brand-new automobiles, Canadian whiskey. There are 22 cars but no whiskey. This is according to Tamara Thompson, an underwater archaeologist for WHS, who has spent plenty of time in the wreck. She's also co-authored an Extensive Report on the Wreck Historic State Register. And uh, I think we followed, uh, you know, we've, we've talked to her and communicated through some of the social media. Uh, I think there were some interesting vehicles that were on there that, that she was trying to track. Some information down on. So, this need to, why does this need to be a National Historic Landmark?
1: Because they
2: can make it so. I think it was the first triple
0: expansion. So, that's what did it?
2: Yeah.
1: So, having it on the bottom that no one can see, except for very few people, and I'm sure they have the drawings and the stats on how they built that particular engine in a museum, and other than the um, aspect that the physical body is there. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, It's a historical significance, but what does that mean? Is it good to look at? Good to say, hey, we got parts and pieces of it still on the bottom, even though we have all the documentation for it on the surface. We have pictures of it on the surface. So why being on the bottom makes it more?
0: Well, if, if you've got five of something and they're all identical and the only differentiator is one was first, one was last, and the others were made in between, is the first one inherently more special being the first?
1: Depends on what you're going to do with it. And by being the only one, what is the significance of that? Of what value? We have three pyramids, so we can get rid of two of them. <laughs> you only need one, right?
0: Right. The, the, the others are spares. Yeah, I I don't know. I just it's almost like this is a reward for archaeology. Is that if you do it well enough, then you get it listed, and then it's
1: and you make your money on it. Yeah.
0: Well, but then what's it too? The isn't the what's the one that we dive in uh, Michigan City? The Muskegon. That's a National Historic Landmark.
1: Yeah. They got a prop somewhere up on shore.
0: Yeah. Um. So I'm not necessarily sure what it does, but... It protects
1: it from divers, but the, uh, the the Angry Lake will tear it up a lot quicker than we ever ever would.
0: Yeah. Gets it on a list. Gets it, yeah, it gets it on the list. It, it, is it something that you have to go to, or is there an obligation to the state now? I mean, if it makes it on the list, do you, does the state have to, you know, do they have to police it?
1: No, well, they got a plaque up there on the shore. <laughs> They have to
0: maintain, but they don't have money to maintain it. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure. And then here we go. Let's see. What this one's out of uh, the Sun Star. What's that? Ph. Not familiar with that. In the
1: Philippines.
0: Philippines. Well, that shows you how good I read. I was thinking this is this was uh, Philadelphia. (laughs) It's all different. Yeah, it's a, a few different letters. You you drink enough and. Thanksgiving and then you look quick enough it looks like Philadelphia. Maybe can we just do the articles if it is Philadelphia? Even in uh, the no. Philippines? no no,
2: no we, I can't. We don't want we don't want to combine. We don't want this happening in Philadelphia. As
1: <laughs> soon as you start saying regulation Work, again.
0: Yeah, for government regulations, we don't want that to happen. No. No. So the what the Philippines is doing is they're promoting scuba diving in the international uh, market and the country remains attractive destination because it's Archipelagic structure in rich marine biodiversity. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, so they go on and on and on, and they want to draft uh, legislation in the first quarter of thousand? Twenty 000, fifteen, 20, 2015, Goodness, I'm making, I'm inventing new ways to say things. Uh, there are only twenty five hundred registered dive shops in the country. What, only, I think
2: registered registered dive shops. Uh, How many unregistered un? monitored.
0: Is that something? I, I, I mean,
2: yeah.
0: Sometimes you wonder if that's a good or a bad thing.
2: Well, it's kind of like a buyer beware. You know, you want to get your air from somebody that checks the compressor periodically or somebody who uh, hasn't changed the oil in the compressor, you know,
1: well, oh, I like the way they say, among them are the mandatory accreditation of scuba establishments, application process, uh whatever, the PCSSD, membership of in- diving individuals, strict adherence to rules considered, blah, blah, blah. I'm just curious, does this go back down to that new thing, the United States government scuba certification? Because there's so much controversy in the American system, the, let's put them all together and make one good one run by the government? Sounds oh, like they want to do the same thing there. Must have got the idea from the United States government, huh?
2: Hey. Philippines, you know, one step short of a possession. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: so there we go.
1: That's like to let the diver beware. There, right? Yeah.
0: Well, it, it it seems like this could be something that could be handled by a private agency, not as opposed to a government. Well, right. Yeah. We, where we've got yes, yeah, starting with our leadoff story. Yeah, you know, we've got Patty, Nawi, other organizations. Yeah, they're going to have some guidelines of recommendations how it should be done is that not happening in this country because it i know traveling like when i was in mexico it's like patty was a big deal for a dive shop and there i i've talked to people that's kind of their indication is that they were looking for a patty dive shop or they wouldn't get air from it just for that reason they felt comfortable at least it was some sort of standard that somebody was admitting to following no guarantee but
1: well, I'm just, you know, when the when the government gets in there with their licensing, I'm going to just be glad that my my fees and my research my certifications every couple of years and my you know my regulatory license that I have to get to dive at least be going to a good cause. Our company. Yeah. I'm sure they'll use the, the money wisely and do not anything to infringe upon the liberties of the diver. As Correct. Long as, as long as you follow their rules. Right. So, so, so how much does that Eric then cost to fill? That's why we buy our own compressors and <laughs>
0: <laughs> the unlicensed compressors.
1: But I will say that no plan, no no plugs for any particular die shop. But Wolf's is really becoming. You get a Wolf fill nowadays, you got a damn good fill, good we value. May, we we may
0: we may be a little biased there, but I I have to say that uh, my last Wolf fill was pretty impressive.
1: That's what I'm saying. They have really improved that.
0: Let's see here. Now what can got, I say, guys? They got you know they. they you gotta watch out. Change back. of staff.
2: Change of staff.
0: Yeah, watch out that guy at the counter, though. Yeah. Uh, sea yeah. organisms from shipwrecks could be the real treasure for researchers. This is uh, an outgrowth of the SS Central America salvage. Samples pulled up from the shipwreck are a scientific opportunity, and uh, as part of disclosure, I do own stock in the Odyssey Organization. Not that I'm making any money at it, guys. Need to pull up a little bit more gold, spend a little bit less money, but. It's 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 like buying a lottery ticket. You don't expect to win. Uh the greatest treasure the SS Central America shipwreck uh, might not be gold bars or coins, but the microscopic organisms in the sediment below the wreck might be a different type of treasure that could save lives. Now that now let's see what are they saying. We want to help lo- isolate the bacteria and see if the process they have to help them live in a very harsh environment. They'll work to determine whether bacteria could have medicinal usages.
2: Wait, 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 let's do a real-world uh, translation on that. Back that up again. What was that prior statement? Uh,
0: we want to isolate those bacteria and see the processes they have to help them live in very harsh environments.
2: Bacteria living in harsh environments. Translated into They eat stuff and weapons. they poop it out. <clears throat> biological weapons. Oh,
0: is that what you're thinking? I sure, wasn't even thinking on those lines. Yeah, I, I guess it could be. I hey, just if
2: you can figure out what makes the you know, the bacteria live in harsh environments. Uh, you know.
0: Well, but the thing is, you
2: can develop dude, a biological weapon that's going to be difficult to terminate.
0: I, I'm not. i mean going there. I'm just thinking that. I my, my point is, forget what they're going to do with it. Why? Why does it take? I mean, you could achieve the same thing by just dropping a a device in the seafloor and pulling up a sample. They've been doing that for thousands of years. Why does it need to be a shipwreck?
1: Take a 10-foot pipe, weight that sucker down, yeah. drop it off, a boat yeah. 10,000 I mean, 10, feet, put it in back the bottom, yeah, pull the Dar- cable back, that locks it in, pulls it up, and I got my sample.
0: Yeah, Darwin used to do that when he was uh, on his voyages. So it's it's nothing unique. So I'm just, you know, are they saying, is it because it's in the related area to the shipwreck that they're hoping there would be a different bacteria? Well, sure.
2: Shipwreck shipwrecks draw, uh, draw life, draw, you know, become an environment.
0: Uh, I guess you just, you might have more life there. I was going to say, if, the sh- if they're measuring it on eating the wood, if the wood's still there, that you b- didn't do that good a job.
2: Well, think about the rust sickles on the Titanic. You know, who had ever witnessed that type of growth on anything before? No one, because they'd never found anything that
0: deep before. Yeah, true.
1: Or the vent cycles that are, what, how many thousand degrees?
0: Oh, those are yeah. amazing. I
1: find them, it's like everything has the potential to be good, but it also has the potential to be very, very bad. Yeah. And you know, We're talking about under the wreck here. Well, if you've got 100,000 wrecks out there, which we do, You've got them different metals, different chemicals, different cargoes. Doesn't that make the bottoms in those ships and the surrounding area totally different from each other? So I've got 100,000 potentially different type of bacteria and whatever based yeah. on the cargoes.
2: The and ship what structure. about some of the uh, radioactive wrecks that are out there?
0: we probably got some nice fish out there somewhere. Yeah, because you get some uh, Simpsons fish with the extra eyeballs. Now, here's, a, here's probably the part here at the end is kind of giving us an indication of what they're looking for. So I said, the Odyssey uses a remotely operated vehicle called Zeus, which is lowered in the ocean from the ship, collects gold, artifacts, and marine samples. Zeus sucks animals and sediments with a vacuum attachment. Samples are placed in containers that are returned to the surface where they are cataloged and preserved. This past summer, Evans observed the results of an experiment he had left in a shipwreck site in 1990 three foot long blocks of wood, some pine and others oak. The idea was to determine how quickly the wood, the same kind of wood used to build the Central America, would disintegrate. I thought the wood would have maybe had a 50-year life, Evan said. Instead, when Zeus pulled up the four inch by four inch blocks, only a few inches remained. A type of clam had apparently borrowed into the woods, none of the creature remained, however much to Evan's disappointment. So this could be some some indication is that if you've got wood that hasn't broken down, when you've run a sample like this, you'd have to determine what's different about that other wood.
1: Maybe gold on wood preserves yeah. the gold? I mean, preserves the wood? Well, doesn't...
0: just enough. Yeah, you never know. Sacrificial gold coin. Yeah. Let's see. We've still got, we've got quite a bit of news. I think we need to cut the news short this week. We'll come up and finish this up next week. Otherwise, we're going to be here forever. Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah, sounds like a good one. We spent a lot of time on the first two items, though.
0: So. Yeah, well, they, they they deserved a little bit of discussion, and I think there'll be things that come on. But we've got quite a few, and we need to get it off this. I'm breaking my rule of how many articles we put in. But, you know, we have such dry weeks, it's hard to give them up on some of these. But we've got some good ones. We have some potential cool gear. Uh, stuff's coming out of DEMA that's going to be some interesting to follow. Uh, other than the coverage this year, I wasn't really impressed with, you know, if you're into photography, there's a couple uh, photography dive-related sites that were doing a good job. But other than that, I didn't see the coverages here at all. So it just tells me that we're going to have to go next year, so some, some way, somehow. And I think, if that, again, I've said that a, a few times, we'll have to go to DEMA. Next year, it's going to be in Florida. That makes a little bit more sense to me.
2: Okay, I'll go next year.
0: Orlando. I'm going. Okay, so if nothing else, we'll have Jim, but I think I, I think I can make it down. I had airfare all set up. And if you're if you're anywhere near there, see what we need to do is we need to have somebody put us up in a ho- a house. Either we need a hotel right on at the show or somebody who's willing to chauffeur us around. Sometimes it's better to stay with people. Or we need to have dives before and after. See, that's my mistake with traveling is I haven't been getting those before and after trips in. That's really where it comes in. So if you're an equipment manufacturer, a charter organization, a tourism organization, and you're in the Orlando, Florida, Key Wests, area let us know you know we'll, we'll we'll work something out we'll get some diving in even though i am afraid of the deadly warm water that t- there's could be some risk involved
1: i know it sounds scary that you have colors fish visibility i don't know how people dive there colored fish colors and fish i that's what i
0: hear colors like like not just like gray
1: that, somebody said
0: that green when i take pictures green Ooh. sounds like something's wrong with them it's usually like an infection or something.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, usually the only green we see growing on fish is when they're laying on their sides, and it's growing on the top side.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I hear it's
1: dangerous to dive down there because it's infectious. Something about you get down there, and then for some reason when you come back up to, up here, up north, you don't dive as much. I don't understand that. Yeah,
0: we have a lot of people who – we've even had people who sell their homes and move down to Florida, cheese fry. So – but uh, we did get to, speaking of that, we got some diving in up here. Two weeks in a row for me. How's that? Woo-hoo. When's the Amazing. last time that's happened? In
2: a dry suit.
0: In a dry suit? Yes, that, that does exist. There are
1: Pictures. F- Pictures are available to prove that's true?
0: Pictures can prove it. You can see some photos. I haven't looked when I say this, but uh, com you can see some photos.
2: Yeah, there, There's actually photos of you in a dry suit there. I even changed my Facebook
0: water. profile for picture. Shows a dry suit.
2: We can make out your mug.
0: Yeah, I wasn't too pretty of a picture, but at least it showed me in a dry suit. I got to get new. I got, I'm just looking at my setup. I need new do BC. I need new goggles. And it's that time of the year for specials. I encourage everybody to take the opportunity this week. As you're out, probably by the time you hear this, you're recovering from the Black Friday, which those outside the U.S., that is our, we, we, we gorge and pig ourselves on Thursday. And then starting Thursday in many cases now and that's a recent event in the last couple of years you start getting deals and it goes all the way through Black Friday so Saturday I've heard some people call that small business Saturday so go into your local dive shop see what specials they have
2: you may be surprised especially local 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 yeah I'm not thinking local I'm gonna,
0: local I'm gonna I'm gonna stop in our newly updated local dive shop and and see what's going on there uh, but, but speaking of dive, so we got some diving in, we went to the, again, the same location and, uh, some of them may have even heard about in the show. Maybe we, uh, and I'm not sure that that's too good of a thing sometimes. So instead of our normal, what did we have the week before Mac? How many? We had maybe five divers.
1: What the week before?
0: Yeah. Was it even that uh-huh. many? No, we had seven you, you or me, eight. You, me, Mary Beth.
1: I just go back to the pictures. I thought we had seven or eight that day.
0: Oh, did we? We did. Okay. So we did. Okay. God, it's yeah. all blending okay. together now.
1: Yeah, because we had 16 last week. 16 divers.
2: In November. November. In the,
0: in the water. It was some nice water.
1: Let's see how many we have tomorrow or, or Saturday.
0: Saturday is our turkey dive, which we're, we're alluding to. But we got in the river, and we had divers from all over. It was great. We had uh, we, we brought out the toy box, which is a enclosed trailer with a heater in it. And uh, as as much as I hate to admit it, that was nice to have that. Uh, we had a couple people bring pop up, uh, you know, the easy up type of tenor awning. Somebody had a a portable table, but we have, we had divers from Ohio, the East side of Michigan, West side of Michigan all over came. And some of those, uh, I I don't think there was a slouch in in the group. Would you say, I think everybody came and got something. I mean, just a great group of people, all, uh, experienced divers. And there was a lot to be found. Some, some, Excellent finds! I love oh, that. I'm,
2: I'm jealous over some of the stuff I saw on the. How about the that? Lives. Was I that was that a
0: crock, Mac?
2: That was that was a crock. Like yeah, a, like a crock, a bottle. bottle,
0: about the size yeah. of a bottle, like a big beer bottle.
1: Well, that was a ceramic bottle. They had a uh, 1886 whiskey embossed, oh. which was very freaking nice. Uh, I think there was innumerable different type of medicines, corkers, glass top bottles. Not to mountain. we had crockery, plate, dishes. Uh,
0: I, yeah, it's uh, there's some milk bottles. I had a creamery, a, a little oh, cream bottle. Great, lots of milk bottles.
2: That was, yeah, everybody up, found
0: something decent.
2: Did you bring up three milk bottles from one spot, Mac? Uh,
1: actually, I did.
2: I thought so. I thought I recognized those. <laughs> you, you're and doing
0: a Mac to, to that us. That was
1: a very nice embossed cobalt blue bottle, too.
0: Were we all at oh, that same spot? We kind of we kind of went across the river here and we were all seemed like we all kind of gathered. I I had somebody pulling my fin and I had a couple people I kind of bumped into on the other shore.
2: Don't tell me that cobalt blue came out of the same place those three milks did.
0: Uh actually yeah.
2: Oh, <laughs> all right i shared that spot i told everybody where it was because i wanted people to find good stuff
1: actually we the, the first group went north to the bridge since they dug out that section of the bridge
0: yeah they, they could yeah. not resist and, and to me that was a i'm not saying a fool's errand but to swim across the river against a strong current and then to go upstream i just did, didn't see the the value of it i cuz the thing with this time of year is it's time is against you even in a dry suit even with everything in the best conditions that strong current that cold water you know i had i started off with a, a full 80 and i still had more than half a tank when i was done it's the cold that gets to you so i wasn't going to go up there especially when there're bottles right there it's like you you start hunting when you when you you need to find a new spot
1: we had people stretched out though from Below that bridge, all the way down past the boardwalk that you can walk on. So that whole section that you hadn't even gone that far yet, we had divers that whole section. And the current was fast enough coming back and I was using a creeper that I was downstream of the kayak launch point and had to come back up to get out. Oh,
0: see I I didn't. I was I and I think I tried a little too hard. I don't think I need to try as hard as I did. Uh, but I was concerned, you know, going across, you get to that point where I was probably over-breathing my regulator a little bit. Not that I was really over-breathing it, but breathing harder than I'd like to when I'm diving. Uh, and that was because I, I wanted to make sure I didn't get too far down and I, I overdid it. I, I came, I mean, I almost came across even. So I think next time I would let the current take me a little bit and work a little bit less. I guess if there was one, you know, like a post-dive review, if there was anything that I had to do different. But things went much better for me. I felt like my gear fit better. I felt like uh, I was just more comfortable in the water. Uh, Now, I did borrow some gloves. I did something that was interesting. Dave Tahneman came and and dove with us, and he brought a bunch of divers with him. And uh, one of the mud club members had a pair of gloves. So what I did is I took one glove from one make— and a glove from the other make, and I put one in each hand. And uh, it was interesting. And I, what I need to do now is, like, flip pants. because my right hand got – was my right hand got cold? No, I can't even remember which one was cold and which one was warm. That makes it even tougher. But one did get colder, but I was – I actually, I think it was my left hand got colder, but I couldn't determine if it was how I was using it or not, you know, if I wasn't using it much, why it got colder. So my left hand was colder than my right. So interesting to, to to see how that that goes. Now what did you say the temperature was? I heard it was a little warmer. Somebody said it was 42. Yeah, it didn't it it's possible, uh, but it didn't it didn't feel that much different than the week before. Yeah, you, know, you can have a few degrees difference in the gauges between divers. So if you're not doing it the same gauge, the same diver.
1: Yeah, current was stronger than last week also, it's getting stronger the last 3 weeks.
0: Yeah, but I felt more comfortable at this at this time than the time before. But I was weighted better. Yeah, when uh,
1: you're coming back across and you hit that sand stretch, mm-hmm. I don't care what kind of tool you have, you're going to drag.
0: No, no, there was not there was not enough. Yeah, you you but the, you'd have to actually use one of those uh, trench shovels. I think would be about the only thing that would work. Uh, but uh, yeah, some it was nice. So we got across the I got across the river and there were bottles and the the bottles are sneaky. They're not obvious. A lot of them I had to touch to identify them as bottles because everything had, uh, you know, green algae growing on it. I mean, did you see the same thing, Mac, where you're you, – I didn't see many bottles that were just a bottle depends sitting Depending on where out.
1: you're at, a lot of times I found both. Uh, I actually found turtles out there this time too. I,
0: I, I saw a turtle as well, and he did not want to move. I mean, he had his head kind of tucked in, and you, I could see him looking at me, but he's like, as long as you don't touch me, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah,
1: I, I I knocked over a couple, which is that's a good number were down there. And I just picked one up, and, of course, I pissed him off, and he came out, so I let him go.
0: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I saw that. Would there be a reason why turtles would be where they were?
1: Uh, a lot of debris, a lot of places to snuggle down into the muck, and we disturbed them.
0: Yeah. Well, what, what, how do they fish? Because I, I was surprised that they were in that much current. Would they just kind of be – I mean, they're just a little bit outside the main current channel?
1: Uh, the ones I saw were up there on the embankment.
0: Oh, this one was down. I mean, he was there was a a log. He was kind of off to the side of the log, but there was still some current there. Huh? It was kind of like where the embankment came down to the bottom where he was at. I mean, not like in the middle. I mean, the middle was really ripping, and they weren't out there. But I would have thought that they would be kind of in a hole. But maybe they they hang out there and they grab stuff as it goes by.
1: Well, probably they were hibernating because those guys can hibernate six seven months of the year.
0: Yeah. Well, they they acted like they were hibernating. Looks like we may have lost Jim here as it's trying to reconnect to him. Oh, let's see what else. But we had a lot of divers. Uh, and, and they actually, these the divers coming in almost made me feel like I was a little bit of a wimp. Because, you know, when you dive local like that and it's cold, I'm happy just to get wet. It's about keeping in condition and seeing some stuff. They came, I mean, if you're going to travel, four, some people are coming four or five hours away. And they did, the, the, I think a couple of them had three dives, wouldn't you say, Mac? Those guys from the Sunrise Coast, yeah, those are not your typical. They're us. They're hardcore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would do the same thing if I was coming across the state. The roles I could see the roles being reversed, where they, you know, they would go do one dive and we'd be, hey, let's go back in again.
1: Well, I know two of them were from Australia, Tasmania.
0: Yes, they were. Yeah, uh,
1: there was another one and I can't remember where he was from. I know he spent a lot of time in Germany. Uh, but they're hardcore, all dry suit and knowledgeable, experienced divers. It was a good
0: crew. It was a great group. Yeah, as uh, yeah, felt very very comfortable having them come dive with us. Everybody who was looking for bottles found some. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bob, Bob and Kurt, who really aren't that much in the bottles, they they got to dive into as well. Uh, now I know Bob, Bob. Bob
1: had issues with his uh, rebreather. You
0: know. He did, and but that kind of makes sense because rebreathers. What what's the deepest you'd say the middle there? Maybe 16, well, sixteen
1: eighteen. Did, did trip in because he's got to be at least ten feet for his sensors to start working right, so he could never keep his um uh, his oxygen levels where he needed them.
0: Right, he had right. To keep his manual. Yeah, he, his computer kept shutting off on him because it was kind of like, hey, you're not even diving.
1: Yeah, the deepest was fifteen feet, and yeah. most people grubbing in five to six feet.
0: See, to me, this unless you were like a underwater photographer trying to get fish. There really, to me, isn't a big use case for a rebreather in 10, 15 feet of water. I mean, he likes to do it because, it, you know, it's like use the same gear all the time and get used to it. But uh, from what I understand is this weekend when he does a turkey dive, he's not going to be bringing in his uh, rebreather with him.
1: No, he'll be back on his, uh, yeah. now, no longer a closed circuit.
0: Yeah, Dave's in the chat room and he said that uh, James and him pulled three dives. So good job getting in there. Uh, they loved the trailer. He said that was that was a good one, and they and he says it was a, a challenge to swim upstream. See, so I didn't. you know, they they were looking there because we got barges. That bridge is coming down, so they're starting to pull up around the bridge and get ready to drop it, and then they'll be building something. Uh, but all the barges were doing is smoothing out the surface. There was still some current ripping underneath those barges. Fourteen keepers. He says, I I've, I cleaned mine this last uh, weekend. I had one a. Uh, I kind of forced it when I was cleaning it. It broke, but it was a Heinz bottle. Have you seen those? It looks like a medicine bottle, but it had Heinz in it. Mm-hmm. And what it what like kind of what how I broke it is, I thought there was a cork in it, and it wasn't a cork; it was a rock. So as I tried to pick the the rock out, I broke it. Mm. Uh, but what, what would be in that? I mean, would that be pickles or olives or a sauce? Can't tell you. Don't know. It was because it's a narrow neck, and I'm thinking, you know, because you know we think of Heinz fifty seven and and that, but. Yeah, they had quite a few products. Uh, yeah, but I had some medicine bottles. I had a bunch of little bottles I thought were interesting. I picked. I found a uh, Canadian dry bottle. Now, was Canadian dry ginger ale? Is that what that is Canada
2: dry? Canada dry is ginger ale. Okay,
0: because it was a large bottle. I'd almost called a wine-sized bottle, and it was probably a, a quart. Yeah, it was, a, and it was a crown cap. Mm-hmm. So I, I but it had, it had an interesting pattern on it, kind of like a, a window screen kind of mesh texture in the glass
2: was it green uh green tint
0: i i'd have to look i got it upstairs i'd have to take, take a look at it uh then i had a liquor bottle and it's one of those i'm looking at i can't tell if it's five years old or 75 years old brown it looked like there's spots for labels uh I'm, if i had to guess i'm going to say 60s 1960s is, a, is about at it uh any any bottles that you had that were particularly good keepers matt
1: uh, the crock I haven't not cleaned mine yet. I've got mine soaking downstairs. Crock looks really nice. I'm anxious to get some of the the, the mung off of it. Uh, there's two milks I'm looking to get cleaned up. They're full of dirt. One's got a pattern I hadn't seen before, but it's not cleaned yet. Uh, the cobalt was a bromo salter, but it was nice, heavily embossed on one side. And I got a couple of interesting pop. Don't know what they are yet because I haven't cleaned them, but they got swirls in them and a nice shape on one. So I'll see when I get them clean. Excellent.
0: Yeah, Dave in the chat room says he's talking with some of the other uh, divers. He's uh, texting them. They're not in the chat room with him, But uh, uh, one of them said they didn't find, uh, as he quotes, shit for keepers. (laughs) So it it just kind of depended on uh, who you are, what you brought up, because people had full bags. But uh, you you sometimes can get to just junk. It's kind of you got the more the more you dive it, the more you you get, the better chances are you. You're going to have some keepers in there.
2: If you don't go down, you are not going to bring anything up.
0: No, no. Nope. In fact, I am. You know, we're doing the turkey dive downstream, and I am like, "Gosh, I'd love another shot at Niles again."
2: Hey, it's uh, the water's not hard yet. We'll be no, we'll be diving it
0: now. We did have some long lake as, effect today. As long as we but... can <laughs> now. How about that? You know, I actually i I think I had probably one of the best days because I had two post dive dinners. So I, went, I So all the muddies who did one dive, we all went up and got the uh the soup and coffee and chatted. And then I went back to the river and they were coming out of uh from their dives, helped them pick up and then we went back in and that was nice, uh getting some time with people who had traveled and dove in different parts of the world and, and getting their experiences. And that's one of the best things about scuba diving is just all the people you get to meet. In fact a few of them I'd like to probably have on the show if the opportunity comes up. Uh well, you got anything, anything more, Mac?
1: No, sir. I did send you another, a little joke. Okay. Down at the That's bottom of the uh, item.
0: Okay, I like that one.
1: Yeah, because it was a scuba
2: diver named joke. <laughs> appropriate for this time of year.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let me uh, paste that one and. Should this be the joke of the day? You think? Well, well it's think appropriate we for this. Yeah, I
2: mean th- okay. today's Thanksgiving.
0: Okay, so we'll go ahead and do that. I uh, got to thank uh, WRVO Radio, uh, the Rich Violas Network i say that right I, I always gotta wonder maybe i'll play the little clip about this point if i remember how to edit it in but uh, wrvo radio reno i said rich I, can't, I i like to say i call everybody rich whether they're rich or not rich rick so reno uh, viola outdoors you can listen to us on them we also on uh stitcher smart radio And I would do a whole bunch of other plugs, www.scubaobsessed.com. But we're running out of time. We're going to be hitting right at the hour and a half, which I'd have never thought as we were starting this. So uh, if you happen to be in Michigan on Saturday and uh, we do our turkey dive, and that's our tradition. How many years have we been doing that, Mac?
1: Which one, turkey dive? Yeah. I'd have to look that up. It's been a long time. Over 30. Probably has been.
0: Wow. Turkey dive. So I don't think we do anything. In the old days, were there turkeys we would find? I'm sorry. Was there what's what's the significance of the turkey other than the date?
1: Is this an opportunity to go diving that everybody's usually off at the weekend? Well, that works for me. I've Put on the schedule for the whole
0: year, so you can't say I didn't know about it.
2: <laughs> Saturday after Thanksgiving and New Year's eve there are two dives you can always count on.
0: Yep, I have to take something pretty extreme for those not to happen. So, once again, thank everybody in the the chat room. Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll, we'll we got some carryover for next week. So it is that time of the show. Are you guys ready? It's five
2: five o'clock somewhere.
0: It is. A young man named Joe received a parrot as a gift. The parrot had a bad attitude and even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. Joe tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by constantly saying only polite words, playing soft music, and anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, Joe was fed up, and he yelled at the parrot. The parrot yelled back. Joe shook the parrot. The parrot got angrier, even ruder. Joe, in desperation, threw up his hand, grabbed the bird, and threw him in the freezer. A few minutes, the parrot squawked, kicked, and screamed. Suddenly, there was total quiet. Not a peep was heard from over a minute. Fearing he'd hurt the parrot, Joe quickly opened the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out into Joe's outstretched arm and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions and fully... Intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Joe was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude. He's about to ask the parrot what should made such a dramatic change in his behavior. The the bird spoke up very softly. May I ask what that turkey did?
1: I like that. It's subtle enough to get your
0: attention. Mm -hmm. Worked on the parrot. Yeah. Yep. I think it could work. You could change that around a few different ways.
2: Kind of like that one time I had a a bucket and a bag of cement back of the boat. Yeah. (laughs) We had the best behaved divers on the boat that day that I've ever seen.
0: (laughs) On that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
2: And although no turkeys were harmed in the making of the show, they were sure a bunch of them well eaten before the show.
1: Second motion.
2: Wonder what a parrot tastes like. Chicken. Good uh,
1: everything tastes like chicken. Well, gentlemen, you know I'm going to bow out uh, myself. Recording
2: has been completed.
1: Oops. Got to wait until that finished.